Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Devinney, lead pastor at Asbury. I want to thank you for joining us. I hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and entertain you a little bit as we go. Um, we are, well, I'm still going to be kind of teaching through the book of Ezekiel this week. You're, we're still reading Ezekiel. Um, we're also still reading Hebrews, but since I'm preaching on Hebrews uh, one more time this Sunday, we're going to focus our teaching on the Old Testament text before we get into December. And one thing that I I want to mention uh, right now uh, is that as I've been getting ready to, to preach during Advent, you know, I, I do want to keep those Advent sermons in line with what you're reading in the one-year Bible. And as you may have figured out, you'll be finishing the year up reading through the book of Revelation. Uh, and so some of my Advent, well, my Advent sermons, really all of them will be on the book of Revelation. And by the way, it is Revelation singular, not Revelations plural. Uh, the full title is The Revelation of John. Um, and trust me when I tell you that that book is very Christmassy, just that most people don't realize why. But that's getting ahead of myself. Um, as I'm preparing some of those sermons, one thing that really sticks out is um, how deeply John, who wrote Revelation, is influenced by the book of Ezekiel. So I want you to pay close attention when you get into Revelation at the visions that John has, in particular his visions of God seated on the throne, of the angels around the throne, uh, his, his visions of what things are like in heaven. And, and pay attention to how similar those are to some of Ezekiel's visions. Um, this book really, really deeply influences John. Uh, so very interesting connection there. Um, I don't know if I have allergies or some kind of cold, but I'm sensing I have limited time here before I start coughing, which has been true all throughout the fall, so I'm sorry about that. But we'll try and um, do this here in as much depth as I can. I want to talk about two chapters in particular that we're reading this week, uh, chapter 23 and chapter 24. And I want to just kind of go over what happens in these two chapters. And I know that you're reading more than, we're reading more than just these two chapters, but um, there's just so much to unpack in Ezekiel. But I want to, and I, I feel like focusing on one or two chapters and unpacking those gives you the tools you might need to unpack others. Um, so chapter 23, he talks about these two sisters, Ohola and Aholaba. Um Fun words in Hebrew. So, um, Ohola means her tent. And it refers to Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay. And Oholaba means my tent is in her. And that refers to Jerusalem, where God's temple was. So just by giving those two names to those two cities, uh, he establishes what the key difference is, right? Samaria is her tent, right? They have left God's tent, God's tabernacle, the place where God lives. They've left it, and they've set up their own. Whereas Jerusalem is the place where God is. 
And that's an important distinction throughout much of the Old Testament, throughout much of uh, the books of Kings, as we follow the history of those two nations leading up to their downfall, right? The, the kingdom of Samaria is not where God is. And it's notable that there is at no point a king of the northern kingdom who is faithful to God's ways. In the southern kingdom, you have a few, right? Uh, you have Hezekiah, you have Josiah, you have Uzziah, you have a few others. There are there are obviously kings in both kingdoms who make grave mistakes and kings in both kingdoms who are flat out evil. But the southern kingdom has a few who get it right. The northern kingdom has none. But in this passage, both cities, both Jerusalem and Samaria, are indicted for allying themselves with powerful empires for political and economic gain. Making those alliances required them to build temples to the gods of those empires. So, they sacrificed their faithfulness to God for worldly gain. Now, that is something that we still actually need to be on guard against today. How are we compromising our values? How are we compromising the gospel in the name of political gain, economic security, or simply comfort? Most of us, I think, don't have much political gain to worry about, although perhaps you have been motivated to vote for somebody who you knew was uh, was evil or at least a person of low character, um, and you justified it by saying, well, they're not as bad as the other guy. <coughs> how, how much did you genuinely sacrifice your integrity to vote for someone you knew would not be a good political leader? That's a tough question. Because, of course, we all want to vote, and, and there really is a logical argument to be had that voting for the lesser of two evils might be the right choice. Although there are plenty of people who will also argue that voting for the lesser of two evils is still a vote for evil. I don't know that I can give you my clear pastoral instruction on that point other than to say be very very careful of how you vote politically voting is important absolutely be careful of how you do it and be careful of who you support <coughs> and be willing always willing to reevaluate your support for a political candidate or even an entire political party based on their behavior based on their character based on their record you don't owe human politicians any loyalty whatsoever. You should have zero loyalty to, to politicians and political parties. Your loyalty should be to God and to the gospel. And all of our political parties fall short when measured against the gospel. But I see a lot of people who have an undying, unshakable loyalty in <coughs> excuse me, in their preferred political party. And that is very worrisome. 
because if that's true, you're falling into many of the same traps that it appears the ancient Israelites fell into. How are we compromising our values in the name of economic security? Hmm? This is a tough one as well. And, and this issue becomes extremely complex because actually there are global issues related to economic security. We live in a nation whose economy depends in many ways on exploiting people in poorer countries. And this is true no matter where you live in the Western world. Now, there may not be much you and I can do about that other than pray. <coughs> but we should be aware of it. We should be aware of how we spend our money and uh, what what brands and what companies we support and, and how those particular brands are, are dealing with those issues because those brands can do something about it, right? If you're buying shoes that you know are being made with uh, with essentially child slaves in some foreign country, maybe you ought to rethink buying that brand of shoes. Here's another one for you. The, over, the vast, vast majority of the world's chocolate is made using slave labor. It's harvested using slaves. Um, and most of them are children. People don't often realize that, but almost all of the chocolate you can buy or eat is harvested with slave labor. Knowing that, shouldn't you maybe change your your habits of buying and eating chocolate? Because you can find chocolate that's not made. <coughs> Excuse me. You can find chocolate that is not harvested via slave labor. But it's going to be more expensive. This falls now into both economic security and comfort, right? Because chocolate is a comforting thing. We like chocolate. Um. But you have to ask yourself, really, can we justify continuing to buy chocolate that's that's made using, that's harvested by, by people who are enslaved? You can see clearly this, this is, uh, you could spend days, weeks, months, years talking about the ways in which um, our relatively small, relatively benign choices about what we do what we eat, where we spend our money, actually have serious implications. And I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, you better be perfect about this or, or, or that God's going to tally up all the Hershey's bars you ate and demand you give an accounting of that when you stand before the throne. But we do have to actually be thoughtful about this stuff and do what we can to live faithfully to the word of God. And that actually does affect even something as small and simple and sometimes even as impulsive as buying a candy bar at the grocery store. We just have to be thoughtful about that. I think this is one thing to take away from Ezekiel chapter 3 um, at the individual level. And I know it's tough. You, know, you don't need to feel guilty 
Christians should not feel guilty. Jesus has taken away the guilt of our sin. More importantly, we're not held accountable for sins we didn't know we were committing. And because of the complexity of the world today, <coughs> it, it's pretty much a given that all of us, all of us will be buying something, paying for something, doing something, investing in something that somewhere down the line is causing injustice. It's almost impossible to avoid completely. But we do have to do what we can. Uh, we have to do what we can at least to, to minimize that in our lives. Because when we're not, when we, when, for, to use the chocolate as an example again, right? let's say you know, well you know now, that most chocolate is harvested using slave labor. Um, and the cheaper the chocolate, the more likely it is it was harvested by slaves, right? Because uh, what is slavery but a cost-reducing measure? So let's say you know all this. You know that that Hershey's bar is almost certainly something that was made using slave labor, labor as part of the production process, and you buy it anyway. Now, I'm not talking about, like, you're wandering at the store, you get a craving for chocolate, you pick up a Hershey bar, and in that moment you aren't really thinking about all of that stuff, right? You have a mental lapse, no biggie. <coughs> I'm talking about you're in the store, you're looking at the candy aisle, you see the cheap chocolate, the Hershey's bars, the Hershey's kisses, and you know, you know that in all likelihood, the chocolate used to make those was harvested by people who are enslaved. And you choose to buy it because it's cheaper than the stuff you know was harvested by people getting paid a living wage. Now in that moment, you have built a temple to a false god. Whether it's the false god of your own money, the false god of your sweet tooth, which I think can totally be an idol, um, whatever. You in that moment have sacrificed your faithfulness to God for something worldly. I know that sounds harsh. It is harsh. There's no question about it. And like I said, we, you know, I'm, I'm not, to be clear, I've eaten a Hershey bar in the last year, right? I mean, I've eaten Hershey's Kisses. I've given my child chocolate. <coughs> you know, she went trick-or-treating on Halloween and got pieces of chocolate, which were almost certainly made with chocolate that was harvested using slave labor. No doubt about it. Um, I wrestle with it. I struggle with that. And there's a lot more depth and complexity to it as well, right? I mean, you've got to think about the people involved in making those products who are not slaves and who need jobs and who need security, right? Et cetera, et cetera. It's more complex than I'm making it out to be. I'm just using it as an example of, of how sometimes a seemingly simple, benign choice is really more than that. And we as Christians have a responsibility to think through 
how our lives are enacting God's kingdom here on earth. We have to think through the ways in which we might be compromising our values. It's important. Even Jerusalem, where God's temple was, uh, ultimately sacrificed its own faithfulness for worldly gain. We too are God's temple. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. But our choices still matter. So, moving on to chapter 24. So the first half of chapter 24 is a parable. Um, Ezekiel is preparing a sacrificial meal. This is the sort of thing that he would have done as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem, right? They come, they offer the animal. Remember, they they kill the animal outside the temple. They bring the blood of the animal inside, and they bring the meat as well. and And there's a portion of that meat that is given to the priests, and that's that's how they eat. That's their food. That's their grocery shopping. <coughs> Um, so he would have done this many, many times uh, as a priest in the temple, and he was a priest in the, in the temple before he was carried off into exile. And the laws of Leviticus prohibit consuming blood. And he correlates this rust that he sees in the cook pot with blood contamination in the meat. And that leads to this comparison of Israel with this uh, choice meat that's been contaminated and must now be discarded. Right, so just as the meat in the cook pot is unclean because of uh, rust or blood, so Jerusalem and all its inhabitants have become unclean because of the bloodshed and the unfaithfulness in the city. And the conclusion is that purification is not possible. It must be destroyed. It must be destroyed. In other words, things have gotten so bad in Jerusalem, in Judah, that the only way for God to put things to right is to destroy the city, send the people into exile, and effectively wipe the slate clean and start over. Again, this is you know, this is one of those things that's really harsh. We, 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 we here in the West, we struggle so, so much with the harshness with which God deals with evil in the Bible. And I think it is that, that our attitude in that response, in that respect, is really, um, it is it is an outworking of our safe, comfortable lives. You and I, we we don't really encounter um, the worst of evil in the world. You know, we we don't we don't see a lot of brutality. We don't see a lot of oppression. I mean, sure, we think we do. Right? I mean, people talk about how they're oppressed here in the United States, and, and most of them are not. Um, the only people who really have a claim to say that they are 
that they have been and are still being somewhat oppressed for people of color. Um, that claim is valid. Um, and even then, compared to many places in the world, they're much, much better off, and at least they have the ability to <coughs> um, put a voice to their oppression and to fight back against it. It uh, doesn't mean that they have not been oppressed, doesn't mean that they are not still being oppressed, but they at least have some recourse. Um, he, here in the West, we, we just we have things easy. It's hard for us to take evil seriously. But if you go into the rest of the world, if you see the sorts of things that go on elsewhere, your perspective will change radically. There is this this sort of strand within Western Christianity that's gotten overly gentle. Um, in, in the sense that there's sort of a, a live and let live attitude uh, of American Christianity. And I see this present within both the conservative and the liberal wings of Christianity just sort of looks a bit different. But in both cases, there's this idea that uh, we, in the, on the conservative side, there's this notion that, you know, we'll just, we'll just retreat into our inner spiritual lives and be holy and everyone else can just do what they want and we don't have to worry about it. And so we can live and let live because we're going to be holy and, and if, as long as we're holy, that's okay. And we don't have to worry about what these other people are doing. Uh, on the progressive side, it takes a much different form, which is that everything's okay. Um, you know, we should be welcoming and accepting of everyone and every lifestyle, no matter what, because God is love and and everything's okay. God's okay with all of this. You won't really find either of those attitudes anywhere else in the world. Anywhere where where people actually do see the effects of true evil in their daily lives, you don't see that attitude at all. Christians do not think it's acceptable to simply withdraw into their spiritual lives and leave the rest of the world to its sin. They, they see clearly their responsibility to confront sin with love, with the power of God in the world, to condemn the people who are enacting evil in the world, to, to bring about God's justice as they can. That's important to them, and there is no consideration given to, well, maybe some people are just are just finding their truth or living differently and it's okay. There's none of that idea because they see the working of evil in the world. So we wrestle with these harsh texts in here, but the rest of the world really does not. In the rest of the world, they look at this and they think, yes, this is God dealing with evil. Thank God. This is one reason Americans really have to work to get out of our own head, out of our own bubble, to interact in whatever ways we can with Christians who live in other parts of the world. If that means reading their books, if that means traveling there and talking to them, bringing them here to have them talk to us, hearing their perspective is vital. Because we live in this little artificial bubble of safety. And they do not. And neither did the people of the Old Testament. So this stuff seems harsh to us because... We, we live in, in an unusually soft and gentle part of the world. Most of the rest of the world sees these passages and, and rejoices at God who is, who is 
directly acting in the world to counteract evil. And they rejoice. Again, I, that's hard for us to understand and to follow. But it is the reality. There is still evil at work in the world, and God still is at work in the world, countering it, crushing it, defeating it. God will accomplish his purposes. Thanks be to God. The second half of this chapter, um, Ezekiel is instructed by God to use his personal life as a representation of the communal life of Israel. So his wife, the joy of his life, is dead. And God tells him that he cannot outwardly show any sign of grief. Just like the temple in Jerusalem was the joy of the people, and it is now dead as well. And so the prophet and the people share in this sort of numb state of grief. And what the, the connection here as well is that Ezekiel is also acting out God's grief in all of this, this numbness and everything that's going on. Ezekiel is called to live out his prophecies so that people will, will see what God is trying to tell them. That it will, it will just confront them in shocking ways to help break through that numbness so that they can see the reality of what's going on. And that is Ezekiel 24. All right, my friends, that is all for this week. Join us for our next episode next Wednesday.